thank you for joining our podcast tonight. This is the first episode on our podcast. Um, we are a group at Lamar University. We're in the ADL program, which is Applied Digital Learning. Um, my name is Naima Baggett, and just to kind of give you a little background about me, I am a learning support coordinator uh, for high school. So my particular e-portfolios are geared towards high school students. Um, tonight, you'll be hearing from a little bit from all of us, and we'll kind of be talking about how you can implement e-portfolios and just some background about how you can use them in your organization. So without further ado, let's introduce some of my group members. Hi, I am Angela Upshaw. I am a dance teacher for a high school. So my e-portfolios are going to be geared a little towards um, the fine arts and for high school students. Hi, I'm Rosa Felsen. I'm originally a graphic designer, but I have worked and I have experience working in developing uh, college courses. And now I'm implementing an e-portfolio for a business class. Finally, I'm Herman Bibbs. Um, I'm a middle school band director with about 20 years of experience on the secondary level. And I want to use my e-portfolios moving forward to aid my students in uh, college auditions and other avenues to help them with college admission. All right. Well, uh, nice to meet everybody. Thanks for joining us tonight. So let's kind of jump right into things. One of the things I wanted to kind of talk about was just how we go about creating e-portfolios for ourselves. So when we're kind of thinking about implementing them in organizations, um, I think sometimes people get confused about what an e-portfolio is. Why do we even want to have one of these? Is it, what does it mean? So let's kind of start with that. What is an e-portfolio? Um, I would say that an e-portfolio is a collection of, um, of the evidence that you have done in, during the class in an electronic format. And it, this evidence showcases the learning over, over time. And it can complain, uh, contain different kinds of files, um, like text, pictures, videos, and, um, and other stuff. Yeah, some ways that um, kind of for me, for my personal e-portfolio is I've been able to use it for not only compiling information for our class at Lamar, but I've also been able to use it um, to kind of put some personal information on the blog. And then what I want my students to use it for is adding those assignments and adding information about themselves reflections on assignments, and like Herman said earlier, um, definitely use it for a way that they can, or have it for a way that they can use it for college applications to showcase themselves as individuals. Yeah, those are, that's a great point for sure. And just to kind of piggyback off of what you and Herman said, um, one of my biggest selling points for why e-portfolios are so important is that piece of being able to use them when they graduate. And so one of the major things is when they're getting ready to try to apply to colleges, and for those of us who have worked with high school students, we all know that everybody has that super high GPA, everybody has all the extracurriculars, and so they need those standouts, and the ePortfolios kind of help do that. We're able to show more of a creative and a digital side or a digital version of what would traditionally be just pieces of paper or just an essay. And so now they've got this additional little piece. And I think what's been cool for me in this whole process is that as I'm building out my own e-portfolio, I'm really seeing the value and what it can do 
and how we can manipulate it to make it kind of our own. And so I think that's been really cool. Um, but but definitely the the college piece that you guys have talked about is super important because that's what my kids want. They want to know what can I use this for later on? Well, you can submit it to different universities and now you don't have to just hand them a piece of paper with all of your accolades on it. Yes, and just to piggyback off what Naima said, um, you can also use it not only for auditions, but let's suppose we were snowed in last week in Dallas. So during that time, if I still have Wi-Fi, I can still practice. You know, I can still submit materials to any possible collegiate uh, directors, and they can still say, hey, this guy is still working at any time. This is my platform. So it's not for a grade. It's not something that I'm being pushed to do. You can actually see me uh, practice 10 o'clock at night, 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm in my own space. Or you can see me preparing for a recital that's two months down the line. You can see everything that comes into that. You know, this belongs to me. This is not just for a course grade. Yeah, that's definitely that that ownership um, that the students and myself, as far as me creating an e-portfolio for myself, I, you know, I have that ownership over it. And it makes me extremely engaged in what I'm doing and making sure that, you know, I'm constantly looking at it to make sure that I like what I have on my e-portfolio. And so the kids are able to take that ownership and make it their own and helps them be a little more invested in what they're actually doing. Let's just point out that Herman is the overachiever in the group because he's still working at 2 a.m. The rest <laughs> of us are asleep. <laughs> Um, so have you guys started experiencing any challenges or maybe noticed any kind of standout advantages that um, you've been able to present to your kids or maybe to your colleagues about the e-portfolios? Advantages or disadvantages? Uh, no, I mean, I was just thinking, since I'm working um, with a professor that is in Albania and the situation is totally different that it's here in the States. I wanted just to emphasize that uh, one of the problems over there would be, um, it has to be, um, it, there's sometimes um, electricity powers um, problems there. So if that would be a, an issue um, if we were trying to use it. Um, it can be an issue, but the conflict where you're doing um, uh, portfolio and uh, you have to be sure that you have access to the internet and there's electricity all the time. So that there it might be a little a little of a problem. And the second one, at least for me in this particular situation, is that the Ministry of Education has been banned all e-learning. So this has to be um, all the work has to be done in the school and used within the, the school uh, campus in order to be um, to be able to 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 work, so I just wanted to mention that because in this particular situation, it's, it's just like uh, something to take in consideration. I have actually um, found some advantages. I, whenever I was presenting it to my students, um, you know, showing them my personal web. I call it a website, but e-portfolios, showing other e-portfolios that I was able to find of other students. Um, they know a lot about the internet and how to create things already. So it wasn't like I was having to 
you know, teach them a lot on how to do it. I kind of told them, you know, this is what we're creating and this is your um, avenue on how to do so. If you have something else that you want to use, you know, by all means, go for it. And I actually had students create it, their e-portfolios using something completely different from what I had suggested. And um, so I feel like that kind of advantage, like they're already so tech savvy that um, it wasn't an issue for them. It's just kind of the motivation, I guess, to get started because it may seem a little bit overwhelming. Um, so I think, but as far as, you know, having them actually the skill to create it, that was an advantage. Yeah, I'd say on my part, um, mine's a little bit different, kind of similar to uh, Rosa's situation. I'm not the primary teacher. I'm actually facilitating my e-portfolios in a department. Um, and so I have a pilot teacher who it's her class, and I'm able to come in and kind of help implement this project within her class and then eventually within the department. And so initially I got the buy-in from her, which was great. But like Angela said, one of the advantages I've seen is that most of my students were exposed to a website or an e-portfolio um, of some sort. And so some of them had created one in the past, but very loosely weren't super familiar with all the ins and outs. And so I did the same thing. I rolled out a Wix site and kind of showed them what to do. I showed them my physical site, and then I did a test site with them um, where I kind of practiced setting up pages. I created some videos for them and stuff like that. But for the most part, a lot of them use Wix. Some of them use other uh, hosting sites. But I will say having that background knowledge that they understand how to set stuff up, that's been an advantage. The only real challenge has been that because for some of them they want the instant gratification of having it set up, just getting over the learning curve, that's been a little bit of a challenge because um, some of them are on different levels. But other than that, it's been – I've really been able to have a lot of um, – a lot of like input within this classroom, even though it's not my own classroom. So um, that's been some advantages for sure. And one of the challenges I have, of course, if it's Wi-Fi issues or broken laptop or Chromebook, if that was your only device to record everything for your e-portfolio, then you're kind of out of commission for a while. But, yeah. you know, you have some that email me, hey, can I do this? You know, I didn't do fine arts this weekend. But I helped my dad fix the family car. So we started with this, and now it's running. So that whole process, you know, all of that adds to marketing that student, not just for fine arts, but to show any recruiter, any future employer, hey, this kid is real. You know, he shows real applications to everything. We might can use him. It goes more, you know, it's beyond a resume. So it kind of, it, like I said, it's yours, so you can tweak it, you can take away an ad from it at any time. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, you know, and I know we focused a lot on just kind of what e-portfolios are and how they've benefited us, but I think it may be kind of beneficial for people to really see on, on an organizational scale. So maybe not just in a classroom or not just in your current position, how we're able to use them. Um, and so let's kind of shift gears a little bit and let's talk about how do we start being able to make this change in the organization. So we're starting with this particular, these particular projects. We have these e-portfolios. You know, we know we see their benefit, but how do we get people to kind of buy into that? Um, 
And so does anyone want to kind of touch on how we can start making those changes in our organization? Where does it begin? What's our jumping off point? You know, reading one of the books that we read was um, Influencer, The New Science of Leading Change by Joseph Grinney and Carrie Patterson. One thing that they mentioned is to make sure that you are identifying some vital behaviors. Um, and these vital behaviors have to be measurable and they have to be able to um, have a specific goal in mind. Um, so whenever we're thinking of, you know, implementing these e-portfolios, if one of your vital behaviors is that you want these e-portfolios implemented in your classroom, well, we want to think about what's a measurable goal that we can reach. Like, when are we going to have these implemented or in what, you know, areas of the classroom are you going to use them? So that was one thing that was recommended from the book is making sure that you have vital behaviors that you're focusing on so that you have clear goals um, kind of set for you moving forward. That's a good point there. Yeah, you, you um, have to, um, to set your, your desired results. And, uh, and then you're right, as Angela said, you have to um, uh, find out what, what are the little behaviors that you need to have in order to get those results. And then measure what, um, how are you going to measure all those um, results to see if you get the, the I mean, the goals that you, that you wanted. Right. Yeah, and just to kind of go back to um, the book, The Influencers, the authors really do a good job of kind of showing us the importance of vital behaviors. And so kind of the main point that they center the book on is the fact that in order to really get influence to matter, you have to figure out what behaviors um, are essential, uh, what behaviors are going to kind of evoke change within your organization. And if we don't identify those first, it's going to be really hard to know what we're measuring down the line. And so maybe, you know, we don't have to mention all of the ones that we've kind of looked at, but maybe we can kind of throw, you know, one or two of the ones that we've identified for our own organization out there just to give people kind of an idea of what a vital behavior looks like. Um, and so I can go first. So for my organization, like I said, and just to give you guys some context, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with us since it's the first episode, I am in a private school. Um, within the private school environment, um, it runs a little bit differently than a public school. And so the program that I'm working in is the Entrepreneurship Diploma Program. So just for some background. So one of the vital behaviors for me that I identified that was going to be most important is that um, instructors will need to develop their own e-portfolios to include reflections, media, blog writing, projects, and they're going to have to be willing to share those with students and other faculty. And I think the key thing there is that it just kind of zones back into the fact that if people aren't willing to kind of see the benefit of it by using the tool themselves, then it's hard to kind of sell it to other people. And so, that was really the first vital behavior that I identified um, within my organization. So what about you guys? Uh, what are some of the vital behaviors or maybe just like a, you know, an idea of what you identified? Does anyone have one they can kind of throw in there to give our audience some uh, examples? One of mine was definitely also to share ideas. Um, I think it's super important that Teachers bounce ideas off of each other, and I feel like it helps us whenever we have someone working with us, like have that 
social context. Um, and so that was one of my vital behaviors is that once we create these e-portfolios that we do share them with each other and we make sure to share ideas, but also to hold each other accountable. Um, once we're sharing these e-portfolios and how they're being implemented in our classroom and not only ours, but maybe some examples of our students and how they're using them, um, I think it just helps. And so that was one of my vital behaviors is that bi-weekly, maybe in a planning meeting, or if we're just, you know, having some sort of PLC looking at data, we would, as a group, um, make sure that we're sharing those ideas with each other. Yeah, everybody needs an accountability partner, um, even in organizations, you know, we depend on each other to really bounce ideas off of. So, Rosa, I know yours is a little bit different because you're working um, with adult learners, you're on the university level. Is there anything specific that you kind of have to identify with your adult learners? Yeah, I was, I was just focusing more in, in faculty um, that um, they will review, measure, and reflect the student, the progress of the students. Um, that was one of the little behaviors that I wanted to um, focus um, that uh, they will have meetings to share information, challenges, and tips that they have um, gotten from the experience that they have. And, um, and also uh, that they will integrate that into the curriculum. Um, so that's, that was part of that uh, behavior that I, I I was reading at this, um, I don't know, um, because I was just listening to what you were saying and what I put here, and I think I haven't received yet the feedback. I, I, I mean, it didn't match with what, what you were saying, so I'm sure that this was something that she will correct um, Ms. Rogan, so that's what I wasn't sure if I should mention it or not, so that's what I... Yeah, the vital behaviors, I, I find, those were hard because um, I will say that figuring out what's measurable was probably one of the difficult things. And I know the book really, you know, kind of goes over that on how to zone in on it. Um, so I did find that, I'm glad you mentioned that, I found that challenging too, just figuring out what are the things that are really going to be essential to get this organizational change um, and pinpointing the behaviors that we're going to require more action and be able to measure them um, was tough. So I, I can definitely say I, I agree with you, and I'm right there with you with that one, because it, it seems like the things that we think are key behaviors, um, at least for me, you know, just speaking out for myself, um, weren't necessarily. They were things that were, eh, they were behavior, but they weren't necessarily vital. So it took me a minute, um, and thankfully our professor, you know, has given us feedback on these things to really help us figure out how to use them in our organization, but her feedback helped me kind of narrow them down some, because I, I think I was all over the board at first with uh, what I thought was going to be important. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I think I'm going to be more uh, precise information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I noticed or that the book talked about um, was once you have those vital behaviors and you want to influence your organization and make sure that they are actually wanting to reach that goal that you have set and, you know, doing everything that they possibly can to make that goal stick and make it become successful. The book mentions 
six sources of influence to make sure that your goals are met and that they are um, successful long-term. So the six sources of influence that they mention are personal motivation, personal ability, social motivation, social ability, structural motivation, and structural ability. So do we want to start kind of going through those and talk about what each of them are? Yeah, let's uh, jump right into them. So as Angela said, there's six sources of influence. Um, and when you think about them in connection to your organization, all of them kind of play a part in things. Um, generally, you need to use at least four to really see some change and see something stick and create follow through. But just kind of starting off, uh, looking at personal motivation, we know that personal motivation deals with, we want to think about you know, do they want to engage in the behavior? And so as we're trying to identify what the personal motivation is, um, that's kind of the way we want to center it. And so does anyone have an example that they can possibly share for what would be considered personal motivation? Um, I do. I, um, the, yeah, the question whether you want to do it, whether the professors want to do it or not, is identify where current curriculums are falling short and um, could benefit from a, an e-portfolio that will motivate them, that will, I mean, make them find something that uh, they can improve in their curriculum, so that will be a motivation. Yeah, yeah. I had something kind of similar to that um, as well. And also, I put... Uh, training the professors and administrators about the positive impacts of, of implementing an e-portfolio uh, e is similar to, to, um, to, the other, to the other one, but one is more focused on curriculum and the other one is just train them in the general sense of an e-portfolio, the impact of implementing it. And um, before we kind of go on, just, you know, for the listeners out there, you have three different really categories that these levels of influence kind of fall into. So you have your personal, you have your social, um, and you have your structural. And so with that, we're just kind of going over some of the things that would fall under motivation for those certain things versus the things that would be more ability-based. Um, and with those, that's where you're kind of allowing yourself to figure out what tools or what resources are needed to help people get to that point. Um, so that's just a quick little snapshot of uh, the differences in them. Um, what about you guys, uh, Angela, Herman? What about in your organizations? What are some personal motivations that you guys are working with? Okay. Um, some of the things I'm working with right now is just, um, I can be honest, as a fine arts teacher right now, this spring semester is geared towards state testing. Um, you know, you have your spring concert, but everything right now is geared towards spring testing. So it, it'll be some days I come in and three or four of my kids have been snatched out for tutoring for state testing. So when I do get them back and they're eager to get, you know, ready for the e-portfolio or to do what they can for the recital, then, you know, behind if they didn't work on it that night or continue it with the parents. But I can tell you my biggest support has been parents. Because at first, when they charged me, hey, how much is this going to cost? This is free. You have everything you need right now to get your e-portfolio up and running. You know, I just need them. So, you know, it's just a challenge right now. This spring semester headed towards state testing. I can definitely see how that would be a limiting factor for getting your 
other teachers in your organization to kind of buy into doing the IE portfolio because everybody is so busy and you don't really have that extra time. But some of the motiva motivational um, factors that I was kind of thinking about is that you are able to grow as a professional in your content and as far as working with technology because you're work using this technology constantly and you're also going back and reflecting on your um, teaching because the kids have to be able to reflect on their assignments as well. So you can always go back and, you know, it can make you a better teacher in your content because you're constantly seeing these reflections from the students, seeing if that content is being mastered. Yeah, and, and so on the on the flip side of that, when we look at ability, you know, we can tap into the different things that we need to provide. So for instance, if my expectation is that when I look at motivation, I'm trying to help my students prepare for the future, you know, one way that I may be able to do that with these e-portfolios is um, making sure that I'm providing the tech, you know, the technical instructions and kind of help navigate them to get them started. Because um, even though many of our students have the, the knowledge of technology, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have all the pieces to know how to use it to their benefit, just like adults. And so that would kind of be the flip side of things. And so kind of moving to uh, the next point there when we, that was looking at personal, just for a recap. Um, and kind of moving to that next point, looking at social aspects, um, there's kind of two different dynamics. Again, you have social motivation versus social ability. Um, and when you think about social motivation, we're thinking about providing encouragement. Um, and when you think about providing encouragement, you want to kind of think about with providing that encouragement, um, do they have or are people encourage, encouraging and discouraging behavior? So, it's easy to be the cheerleader, but we also have to discourage practices that are not really pushing us towards that goal that we have on an individual and an organizational level. Um, and so an example of that, I would say, would be just kind of speaking for my organization, going back to modeling the e-portfolios, um, but using them at faculty meetings and during professional learning um, as well as during class. And so constantly showing students what works, but also what doesn't work. So showing them kind of the bloopers, if you want to say, of what's working with e-portfolios. And that can be by showing your own or also allowing kids to show kind of the things that are working and not working for them. And I think that kind of falls right in line with the social motivation is being able to get the the positives and the negatives or the do's and the don'ts out there. I completely agree. And I think whenever we looked in the book, it did talk about, you know, as far as the social motivation, you want to have people in your organization that are, you know, these influencers that can influence others. So once you get those people on board, then, you know, hopefully everyone else in your organization will kind of follow. Um, so, you know, that can be some social motivation, just having that person that people look up to, you know, buying into your idea and then will allow for others to buy in as well. I was just thinking that if you don't have it, because this is a new thing that you're implementing um, within the organization or within uh, actually the environment, the educational environment per se, just bringing 
I guess people that can uh, hold a session about implementing and the use of it of an portfolio and about the successes that it's been um, happening in other countries or in different universities around the world, that could be very encouraging. Um, at least in my case, I'm thinking in, in, in my particular case that, I mean, um, yeah, I guess speakers and also maybe distribute brochures with a procedure, I mean, and posters about um, how to market your portfolio to potential clients or employers, that could be also very motivated for both uh, professors and, and students. So, yeah, also that, that, that could be a way to motivate them. Yeah, I love, um, I love that, that you mentioned having speakers come in and maybe utilizing other people's kind of expertise on things. All right, so, um, yeah, with social motivation, it's, it's kind of, you know, challenging. You really have to figure out how are people encouraged and what behaviors you want to discourage. And so on the flip side of that, when you look at social ability, you have to kind of ask yourself, okay, do others provide the help and the information and the resources? And what does that look like? Because when we get the motivation part down, we still need the resources to be able to you know, we have to provide assistance. We have to be able to still figure out, okay, what can I do um, to support the encouragement or discouragement that's happening? Um, and so, like in my situation, one of the things that I like to do now is I provide tutorial videos for ePortfolio setup and some of the other kind of, I guess, frequently asked questions that I've gotten from students. I'll record little short video clips. Um, and I can upload those or send them to the teacher so she can show those in class because ePortfolios are also new to the teacher who I'm piloting her class in. She has a website, but it was something that was created for her. So by me doing the tutorial videos, it's something that's benefiting the students, but it's also helping her as well. And so it's kind of twofold levels of support. Um, so I think that kind of falls into the social ability component, at least for my organization. What about for you guys? I, I love the, the idea of the videos. I was, um, yeah, I, I, I was, I propose organized students, team, team groups, but I think that the video will be very explicit for them, especially if they don't know. I mean, if, if this is something new. Yeah, so I, I like it very much. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's easier, I think, um, with the videos, just kind of similar to how, you know, at, at our university, a lot of our professors give us video feedback. Um, which really is beneficial. They put the work up there. They walk through the different pieces. And so I kind of use that as my jumping off point for my videos. If a student sends me a question, so for instance, how to set up a page, I pull up the page and I do like a screencast sort of thing. And I can walk through all the steps and set up a page right there so they can see it in real time and not just show them an already completed page. I think something else that kind of falls under the social ability is um, what I mentioned earlier is when teachers are sharing what's working and what's not working in their classrooms, because, you know, ultimately we want ever, all teachers to implement these e-portfolios. That's our ultimate goal in, you know, having these strategies, you know, present and these vital behaviors. We want all of these teachers or leaders in our organization to implement this, you know, idea. So I think sharing what works and what doesn't work with each other, it definitely will help you feel a little more comfortable in your ability to create these e-portfolios. And whenever you have, you know, someone to piggyback ideas off of or 
you know, have videos to turn to that maybe another teacher has created or another, you know, professional has created to help you in those situations. And then even turning around and sharing that with your students as well, they, you know, having them having your help, you know, that social help from their teacher, I feel like that's a very important aspect as well. Yeah, and when it comes to sociability, I mean, honestly, those meetings and get the buy-in, they're only beneficial in my department meetings. Anything else that's out when you get to content areas, it goes from, you know, what I had to offer back to test scores, discipline, and everything else. So I'll be honest, they're only beneficial for me right now in department meetings and fine arts. And so that kind of jumps us into um, structural. Uh, so kind of we looked at motivational, we looked at social, kind of offering that assistance and everything like that, providing that encouragement. And so when you look at social, uh, stru excuse me, structural motivation, you're looking at kind of changing their economy. You're looking at um, basically figuring out, you know, what are things, what are we doing? Are we rewarding and encouraging the right behaviors and discouraging the ineffective ones? Um, what's kind of our play there? And so uh, I would say this was the hardest one for me to kind of wrap my head around um, because it's hard to figure out, you know, how do you offer these things on more of an organizational scale and not, you know, within reason. And so I'll just kind of jump into one that I feel like was the most important. And it's really, or two, it's going to be the technology skills that get developed, but also the resume builder. And so a resume builder isn't just for the adults in the, in the building, it's for the kids too. I mean, eventually our students are going to leave us and they want to have something to take with them. So what better incentive than knowing that you're building out this piece of work that I can take with me and showcase everything that I've done. Um, so I find that, you know, I find that pretty cool. Um, and then, like I said, the, just the technology enhancement piece of it, that's also pretty important as well. Yes, I completely agree. I think those are definitely, um, you know, good motivational pieces that deal with the structure of your um, environment. And I did want to mention that in the book, it does say that um, before you use these rewards or because that is one part of structural motivation is actually having rewards um, for people who are successfully implementing your vital behaviors or successfully implementing some of your other, you know, getting these goals met. Um, but one of the things in the book that it did mention is that you want to make sure to focus on the personal and the social motivation and ability first before you um, just turn straight to rewards to try and get that or to try to use that as your way to get the, your organization to buy into your idea. You wanna make sure that you tap into the other um, sources of influence before this. But they did mention that this is probably the easiest to change because you know it does deal with your environment. So it doesn't necessarily, you don't really have to have anybody agree or you're not trying to change their mind on anything. So just to kind of piggyback off of that, um, it kind of goes back to the whole point of figuring out what levels of influence we want to use. And so 
<clears throat> with structural motivation, you know, the easiest thing that people always want to think about is how do we incentivize things? But sometimes just throwing rewards at things doesn't create a sense of lasting behavior. Um, and ultimately, that's what we want. And so that kind of flows us into structural ability, thinking about, so how do we change our environment to make it something that um, is beneficial to the behaviors that we want to see change. And so are there systems in place that can keep people um, on the track for progress? And so um, does anyone want to kind of share out, you know, how they're utilizing that structural ability or maybe plans for how they think that they can use that just to kind of give our crowd some examples? Um, I, I, I'm proposing just increase the number of computers in launch areas and computer labs, um, especially in, in um, yeah, in, in, in a place that, um, in, well, in a university that, 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 that might not have those sort of facilities. Um, also, just ensure that the Wi-Fi is reliable in every building. And of course, there's no um, power. In, I mean, the power is on. That's basically, at least for my, my um, for the university I'm working for. Yeah. Yeah, that's good point. I mean, you know, if we don't have devices, uh, and I think Herman brought this up earlier, if, if devices aren't working, like it makes it very difficult to access the materials that they need to put this together. Because let's be realistic, you know, our kids, or our students, we should say, or even the people that we work with ourselves, we use technology on a consistent basis daily. And so when we don't have adequate technology, that hinders a lot of the development that we want to see. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That, that, that reminded me of what you were saying earlier too, Herman, about, you know, if the kid doesn't have a device available to them, then that kind of kind of stops them from being able to keep going with some things. So the good thing is they can always catch back up because this is a living, breathing piece that we're putting together. And so one of the things that kind of just made me think of something else when you were when you were talking, Rosa, was that um, in addition to access to laptops, for, for me or in my organization, one big thing that I think would really help change the space is providing subscriptions to things, um, things like Canva. So, you know, Canva has a free version, but it also has a paid subscription that you can get that gives you access to so many other templates um, and resources, which I think providing that to the employees and other digital media softwares really allows for creativity to take place as we're developing our e-portfolios. Um, and I think that, that that's an incentive in and of itself, because as we know, in any capacity, especially in the education field, a lot of times we're purchasing resources on our own and subscriptions on our own because we see the value. And I think if schools or um, companies or organizations have the resources to get those subscriptions like that, it's a game changer because now I can take my creativity to the next level. So it just made me think about that when you were talking about accessibility to things. Definitely, that that would definitely help out not only like teachers, but students for sure, um, or whoever in your organization, just little things like that. And what I was trying to say earlier was um, that the structural motivation and ability, ability pieces should be the easiest 
to kind of change because they're not actually dealing with people. Whereas personal motivation, personal ability, we were looking into ourselves and social motivation and social ability, we have looking at others. The structural, we're just kind of fixing our environment to make it fit our goals and help us reach those goals. So it should be the easiest one to kind of manipulate to move forward and help, you know, these pieces of influence help us reach that ultimate goal of change that we want in our organization. Yeah, man, we hit um, a lot of different kind of concepts tonight, but thank you guys for hanging with us. So, you know, the thing is, I mean, e-portfolios, they are the here and now. So there's definitely some some benefits to them. Uh, obviously, you know, we may be biased about it, but there are some benefits to them. Um, but there's some challenges as well. And uh, one of the things to remember is that when you're getting these started in your organization, really take the time to identify the vital behaviors that you can measure and that are going to really help kind of ignite the change. Um, but to do that, you have to consider those six sources of influence. And so, you know, those are personal motivation, personal ability, social motivation, social ability, and structural, structural, <laughs> structural uh, motivation and ability. Sorry, couldn't get that one out. Um, and we don't always use all six of them, but like the book suggests, you know, you need at least four of those to really make things stick um, and to see that continuous change. And so I know we kind of went over a lot today or tonight on our first episode, but uh, we want to thank you guys for hanging with us and kind of chatting with us about ePortfolios and tune in for our next episode. Um, I'm Naima. And I'm Rosa Felsen. Thank you, guys. And see you soon. And I'm Herman Bibbs. Thank you. And I am Angela Upshaw. And thank you all for joining us. All right. Thanks for uh, joining our podcast, um, ADL program, Lamar University. Good night.